Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Well, the American presidential election is over, or at least over-ish, and the arguments about what the results mean are well underway. Putting aside the question of who will sit in the White House come January, many observers were shocked by just how many Americans voted for a second Donald Trump presidential term. It wasn't just that Trump got 48% of the popular vote, less than two percentage points behind Joe Biden. Trump also increased his vote share among a wide range of non-white demographics, including blacks, Hispanics, Asians, and Muslims. Biden still got clear majorities in all of these categories, but still, Trump's substantial and elevated share would seem to challenge the popular narrative, in progressive circles at least, that Trump's appeal was based primarily on xenophobia or even white supremacism. With me to discuss this is Jamil Giovanni, a Toronto-based book author, journalist, radio host, and public advocate. He also was in the same Yale Law School class as Hillbilly Elegy author J.D. Vance, and the two have worked together in the past. This week, Jamil joined me to talk about his recent National Post newspaper column titled, If You Truly Respect Minorities, Tuesday Night Shouldn't Have Surprised You. Here are excerpts from our conversation. So there's this stereotype of the Trump voter as male, white, racist. You wrote an interesting column for the National Post right after the election, saying that the election results show that the truth is more complicated. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so I think it's comfortable for lots of people to think of the Trump voter as a pretty caricatured version of an American, you know, the person who's angry that society is changing, the person who's mad that America isn't what his father's America was, something Van Jones called the white lash back in 2016. And it became such a dominant narrative that we forgot to note that Trump actually in 2016 won more non-white voters than any Republican had since 1960. And his share of the non-white voter population actually grew after four years of people being told he was a white supremacist and everyone who supports him is a white supremacist or is angry at minorities taking their jobs or whatever the prevailing you know narratives have been over the last four years. I say this as someone who is not American, so I did not vote in this election. I say this as someone who probably would not have voted for Trump in all honesty, but I am very, very happy to see more minority voters feeling empowered to vote based on their policy preferences, based on maybe where they stand in the culture wars. And that's part of understanding what happened in the 2020 election, I think, is realizing that a lot of Trump's messaging, a lot of the Republican messaging does reflect really serious opinions and values held by people of all different backgrounds. In your column, you cited New York Times data showing that Despite the relentless fixation on race by much of the media on both sides, but primarily the progressive side, curiously, there's actually a lessening of the race divide in the United States. Could that be possible given the months of 
Black Lives Matter news items we've been flooded with? Yes. That's another really interesting thing is that based on the news items that we pay attention to, when we think about race these days, often what comes to mind is policing and the killing of unarmed black men by cops. And we have this idea that black people, Hispanic people, Asians live such a very different life than white Americans. It's a very powerful emotional thing that I believe in many cases people react to strongly for good reason. They want to be empathetic. But you wind up having otherwise smart people say things like black men are afraid to walk down the street or Latino men can't interact with police officers without fearing for their lives. And it gives this impression that we are living in completely different realities, that a white person and a black person couldn't possibly understand one another couldn't possibly see their place in America in a similar light. But if you look at other data points, it paints a very different picture, right? I mean, interracial marriage is up and has been up every single decade, every single year since the miscegenation laws of the United States were rightly ruled unconstitutional. And so you look at it and you say, well, if we're living such different lives, if we can't understand each other, how are so many of us finding the ability to love one another, have children with one another, share a home with one another. You look at other statistics that show, despite persisting inequalities in American society, many minorities are climbing the ladder. They're getting high school diplomas, they're getting college degrees, they're entering the workforce, they're finding themselves in positions of leadership that were not open to them in the past. So we are actually interacting with one another beyond racial lines in in many really healthy, important ways. So we are not nearly as polarized, I believe. And when I say we, I don't just mean America. I think this is true for the Western world, including Canada, including the United Kingdom, including a lot of places. We're not as polarized as it might appear on face value. And because of that, we're starting to see that more people are not interjecting or asserting themselves into the political process on the basis of their identity. They're no longer having to sit back and say, well, one party doesn't like people like me and the other party does, or I don't vote for Republicans because that's the party of rich people or white people. Or in the case of a lot of white folks in, in the suburbs, like in Arizona, they're also not saying, oh, you know, the Democrats, they're not a party for white suburbanites. This is a party for urban populations and minority communities. It's shifting where people are actually saying, my race isn't what's on the top of my mind when I go to the ballot box. And that's why you're seeing increasing numbers of minority communities starting to consider their options. They're starting to say, oh, well, maybe the Republicans have some policy ideas I prefer. And it's working the other way, too. More white people are saying, oh, maybe the Democrats are a party I want to vote for. This is a good thing. If you believe in a truly diverse, multicultural society where people of different backgrounds work together, respect one another, debate important issues, this is moving in the right direction. And I think it's puzzling to a lot of people that all of this progress would happen during years where we've been told that racial polarization is perhaps the worst it's been since the civil rights movement. But that's just a false narrative. And I think that this election has really proven that that is not in touch with reality. And it's not capturing the way a lot of people see their lives and their place in their country. I covered the New Hampshire Democratic primaries for Quillette. New Hampshire is a very white state. It is not racially representative of the rest of the United States, but you can still see some patterns emerge. I would go to an Elizabeth Warren event and the room would be 
almost 100%, primarily female, primarily wealthy-seeming, highly educated people, lots of nice cars parked outside, lots of nice clothes. And I would hear a lot about race, what Black people want and what Hispanic people want. When you came out, I felt like it was a lot of white people convincing themselves about what people of color wanted. And I thought that was connected to the full court press that the New York Times and other progressive media put on to get a woman of color on the ballot for the Democrats. Harris wasn't actually that popular among black voters in the Democratic Party. Biden was much more popular. Is it somewhat patronizing the way the Democratic Party, in many cases, it's upper middle class white people who are telling the country what lessons we need to draw from street protests? Or are they channeling legitimate grassroots views among a majority of people of color communities, including black people? Democrats, of course, still won the majority of black votes. They won the majority of of Hispanic votes. They still have a trusted relationship to some extent with large portions of these minority communities. But where I think things start to fall off the rails a bit, one of the things that struck me when I got to Yale was how many people in the Ivy League environment from minority communities grew up in majority white neighborhoods. And what I think that means is that if you haven't spent a lot of time with people in minority neighborhoods, if you haven't spent a lot of time with people who might all look similar but actually think quite differently about the world, it's easy to come to, I think, a fairly simplistic and I would say, you're correct, patronizing understanding of who these folks are and overlook how complex their lives are. Like I grew up in a mostly black and Indian neighborhood. And if you grow up in that kind of environment, you learn pretty quickly that, you know, we don't all just sit around all day and talk about how we have things in common, right? Like we don't sit around being like, hey, you're black, I'm black too. That's actually an opportunity to to really highlight the diversity in these minority communities because you realize we have different opinions and that's what we talk about, just like everyone else. When you wind up with a lot of these elites from minority communities who have fashioned their entire identity in contrast to a white majority, then race becomes very, very central to their perspective. And I think what the Democrats have done that is a mistake, in my view, if their goal is to actually understand minorities, is they've built their entire narrative around what these very privileged elite people of color have to say about race instead of talking to people on the grassroots working class level. Every institution is going to have its strengths and weaknesses determined in part by the people that they permit to be leaders. And what the Democrats have done is they've, they've taken a very top-down approach where a lot of the folks who they have anointed as authentic voices, as people who know what's going on in minority communities and minority neighborhoods, they simply just don't have the same connections. You look at like a DeRay McKesson, for example, who the Democrats embrace hugely, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, When he tried to run for mayor in Baltimore, the guy barely got, I think, 3% of the vote. And that's a majority black city. I mean, it just shows you that the people who Democrats listen to do not really speak for very many people at all. Just like I think a lot of the white folks in the Democratic Party are quite out of touch with white voters as well. And I think that the blind spot that gets created in all of that 
is they really believe that, you know, you can pick a certain elite few people from these communities and they will channel, I don't know, through their DNA, their melanin, whatever it is, the perspectives and values of, you know, a very diverse set of millions of Americans. And I, I think that's, that's proven to be false. And what's occurring, I believe, is a generational shift where more people are realizing I don't need a gatekeeper to speak for me. Just because that person looks like me doesn't mean I need to rely on him or her to provide a perspective for my community. In fact, I can provide a voice of my own. There's a certain irony in two people who live in Canada, where we're from, though we both spend a lot of time in the United States, talking about American politics. But it's interesting the way I see these echoes here in Canada. In Toronto in particular, there are certain black activists who seem to be a lot more popular among white CBC producers than among the community. Going back to your own roots here in Toronto, policing was a huge issue in the United States. In your own experience, were you scared to walk down the street? I think policing, racial profiling is a very serious issue. And the reason why you see so much energy around it is because it is speaking to a reality that a lot of people see in their personal lives or see among their relatives, their friends, their neighbors, which is that legitimate concern that police officers will perceive you if you are a black man or a Hispanic man or non-white man, whatever language you want to use to describe a population that is disproportionately interacting with cops. As a young person myself growing up in the suburbs of Toronto, I interacted with cops more than I wish. It was a very uncomfortable experience for me. I wouldn't say I felt like I was going to be you know, shot on the street, but there were many days where I felt like I was going to be harassed or bothered on my way home from school because I, quote unquote, looked like someone who they were in search of. So that is a real problem. I think the reality, though, is we can't use that problem to then argue that society itself must be dismantled. And I think that what you see among the chosen voices of a lot of media and news producers are people who take these realities of inequality and then put out what I would call theoretical fantasy ideas about what we're supposed to do about it. So instead of focusing, for example, on you know, more neighborhood-based policing. So police officers have better relationships with young people and can tell the difference between young people who they probably should be speaking with on the street and young people who they should let walk home in peace. Instead of those sorts of ideas, which I think are very practical and necessary in order to overcome these challenges, we wind up with goofy activists and authors who say things like, let's defund the police, let's abolish the police, let's get rid of the prison system. And it's just not a serious idea. And I believe that these communities deserve serious conversations and serious policy proposals. Some of our listeners will remember the media controversy, it now seems like a million years ago, at the New York Times when the op-ed editor, James Bennett, essentially got turfed because he had the temerity to run this op-ed by a Republican lawmaker arguing that the military should be deployed in American cities to stop unrest. That was seen as an incredibly radical idea inside the Times newsroom. But when I actually looked at the polling data, something like 30 or 40 percent of black Americans agreed with that. If you'd looked at Twitter, you would have thought the figure was zero percent. We're so obsessed with polling data in every other context. There's this strange aversion to looking at polling data of the communities 
that we rightly should be most concerned about because they're the most disadvantaged. And instead, we take as authentic representations of their viewpoints, sometimes the angriest and most extreme proponents. Do you think there's a taboo at sometimes looking at the actual data? Yes, I do think that part of it is a taboo. Uh, So the example you gave there of some large portion of Black Americans. Like a third of respondents. It's not an insignificant number, let's say that, right? If this significant number of Black Americans has a view on law enforcement, on rioting, on how we should respond to some of the uh, damage being done to small businesses and retail spaces, that's something that complicates an issue that I think a lot of folks want to make into a binary, right? And that's, that's ultimately what is at stake when you really reconcile with the polling data of minority communities. It forces you to realize there's not a binary here. And that makes it a less persuasive cause, I think, right? And the same would be applied to affirmative action. If you look at polling data, large number of Black folks, large number of Latino folks, they are not in favor of affirmative action. Some polls would tell you it's a 50-50 issue, in fact, in Black communities. And yet, if you presented it that way, it all of a sudden means that you have to reconcile with the counter-argument to affirmative action in a way that's more nuanced than just saying, well, these are white people who don't want to give up their spaces in elite institutions. The desire to force us into binaries where some positions are racist, some positions are not, some positions are held by the quote-unquote privileged, some positions are held by the oppressed. I mean, this binary structure is what makes what we would call wokeness or a certain kind of identity politics or whatever the term we want to use is, it's what makes these things stick. And it what makes people afraid to challenge the arguments being presented to them, because if you wind up on the wrong side of a binary, then all of a sudden you might lose everything you've got. And now a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin. I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, Bittrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. Here in Canada, the leader of the left-wing NDP party, Jagmeet Singh, he happens to be a Sikh. I remember when he was elected leader of the NDP, there were all these (laughs) magazine articles and newspaper pieces coming out with white people saying, oh, this is awesome. People of color will now vote for the NDP. 
And I was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> My Hindu friends were like, you think I'm going to vote for a Sikh conspiracy theorist, as he then was, who was promoting the idea that Indian Hindus blew up an Air India flight in the 1980s, because he was essentially peddling a soft version of that conspiracy theory. The idea that somehow, oh, I don't have white skin, yeah, I'm going to vote for this guy. This was a serious idea in Canadian politics. And then Surprise, surprise, the results came in from some of the most multicultural ridings in the Toronto area, such as Scarborough. And <laughs> wow, he didn't do well. Gee, who knew? Apparently, non-white people don't just vote for people who have melanin. This is a problem in Canada, too. Absolutely. And in fact, a lot of majority or large Sikh populations in ridings across Canada also didn't vote for Jagmeet Singh. So the idea that even his own uh, religious community would uniformly line up behind him proved to be a complete falsehood. In fact, a lot of people wound up voting for a guy who was caught having a, uh, a blackface hobby, right? <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Based on how we would assume, uh, according to some of these dominant narratives, people of color think, they would say, well, not only would I want to get behind the leader of a party who's also a person of color, but I definitely wouldn't want to vote for the guy who's a blackface enthusiast, <laughs> right? And yet many of them did. I'm not the biggest fan of Prime Minister Trudeau, but just as I'm happy to see minorities push back on the idea that they're monoliths in the case of voting for Trump, I was also happy to see that happen in the case of Prime Minister Trudeau, that you can't just look at people and make assumptions about their voting preferences or their policy preferences based on what they look like. And that's kind of the problem when we were talking about the police. That's the problem that I felt as a kid with cops, that they were looking at me and assuming something about me based on what I look like. And people don't like that. Like whether it's a cop doing it or a journalist or a pollster, there's something inherent in a lot of us, not everyone, but a lot of us who just want to push back against that and say, I am an individual. You must respect me as a man or as a woman. By the way, just for those following at home, maybe who aren't Canadian, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, when asked how many times he had worn blackface, this is his answer. He said he, he could not recall. Yeah. You are somebody who is, even though you're from Canada, you're really well placed to look at the racial divide here. Because on one hand, I know you've written a book and you've done grassroots research on how men of color, how they're seen and how they see the world and how some of their tribal affiliations and how that expresses itself. But you've also worked with J.D. Vance in the United States, who, of course, is known for looking at the economic, call them grievances or concerns, the despair of some white communities. How has that comparative approach informed your understanding of the racial divide and to what extent it's closing in the United States? My friendship with JD started uh, in our first year of law school at our law school orientation, I think has been a phenomenal education for me. And I think not to speak for him, but I think he'd agree in how race can keep people who have very similar interests when it comes to the economy, when it comes to policy looking at each other as if we're coming from completely different places. You know, JD was really the first very close white friend that I've ever had. As I said, I grew up in a majority black and Indian neighborhood. So the only white person I really knew growing up was my mom and her relatives of a biracial background myself. So when I met him, I didn't really anticipate that someone from Southern Ohio would wind up being my closest friend from law school. And I'm sure he didn't think he'd meet a black Canadian uh, I'm not sure he knew he existed, but he certainly wouldn't have uh, he wouldn't have expected that his best friend from law school would have been a black Canadian from Toronto. But 
we bonded pretty quickly over what I would call a mutual discomfort at Yale, where we just, you know, I think had a hard time getting along with the institution and finding friends and just feeling comfortable. And so we bonded really closely. But there were a lot of moments over the course of the three years we were at law school together, and, and this has played out, I think, since we graduated, where you know, race affected my life in a way that made it harder for he and I to sort of see Yale the same way or to see American or Canadian society the same way. So, for example, when I was a student at Yale, I was constantly being stopped by security and Yale's has its own like police department. And it was partly, I think, because of my racial background, but I think also as part of how I dress. Like I went to law school dressed in hoodies and Timberland boots and baggy jeans. And they basically thought that I was a, a local, quote unquote, who had trespassed onto Yale property. So I would get stopped all the time. And I wound up spending so much of my time dealing with those sorts of issues as a student and as a student activist. Whereas, you know, JD, for example, obviously didn't have that experience. And so he wasn't preoccupied with some of those things. And it makes me wonder, you know, if we both focused on the same things and didn't have that different experience separate the way we used our time, we could have been unified in asking for things like better financial support for kids from low-income backgrounds because Yale just doesn't have very many of them or more loans or grants for students to be able to pay for textbooks, which is a hidden cost in going to these sorts of fancy uh, Ivy League programs that you don't always think about until you're there. So we didn't really work together on those things because of it. And after we graduated, we, we made an effort, I think, to work together more, recognizing that in order for people from low-income backgrounds in America and in Canada to have their interests better accounted for by decision makers, there has to be some multiracial effort to show what we have in common and how policy proposals that are colorblind can actually help all of us, even if there's not a direct racial focus to them. That's really interesting, especially since the term colorblind has become like a four-letter word, ironically, in many progressive circles, because according to all this anti-racism training stuff, if you claim to be colorblind, that's just another sign that you're a big racist. However, I think it's really interesting what you said about the way you dressed on campus, because... (laughs) I remember in the first semester of law school, I used to tease my friends, especially the ones from California, for some reason, who dressed like they had just come out of bed. Like, you know, I'm this guy from Canada and I was intimidated by the law school atmosphere and I was always in button down shirts and dad jeans. But those surfer dudes from California, they were not worried about getting stopped by the police. And they had the luxury of dressing however they wanted, knowing that they weren't going to get harassed. I think for a lot of people, including myself, as much as we criticize the cultural excesses of the Black Lives Matter movement and such, it has been in education. And we have heard stories. And on Twitter, I'm seeing all my conservative friends saying, you know, this election has to be a wake-up call for Democrats who think that Trump voters are just white racists. They're not just white racists. Do you think there's been a wake-up call for white conservatives who think that blacks getting harassed by police is not a problem? It's a good question because I I think we have to separate a wake-up call on the need to address inequality as it concerns racial minorities versus the need to address policing. Because I do believe that among a lot of conservatives, there has been a growing recognition that, hey, you know, racial differences do disadvantage some folks and, and public policy has a, has a responsibility to address that. You know, and conservatives have become increasingly comfortable talking about charter schools 
as a way to deal with that. The Trump campaign had a more specific plan for addressing that for black communities than the Biden campaign had. You know, Trump announced this platinum plan of, of having $500 billion of, of loans being put into black businesses. This is why you had Ice Cube and Lil Wayne and, and others, uh, other notable, you know, members of the black community and um, essentially either endorse or partner with the Trump campaign. So there is that growing recognition. And I think in Canada, we've seen similar things uh, in terms of economic empowerment is something people are increasingly comfortable with when it comes to talking about minority communities. But I think on the policing side, I just fundamentally believe that although many people may have been alerted to the problems in the justice systems of our respective countries because of Black Lives Matter, I think Black Lives Matter and these activists did a massive disservice in how radical they are. You know, when you can go on their website and see that they want to disrupt the, the nuclear family, it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you, you, you may be had me on the need to do some reforms to make sure a killing like what happened to George Floyd in Minnesota doesn't happen again. But now you've crossed the line where I, I can't go with you here. And so for as much as they may have helped, I think they also hurt. What I've been trying to encourage people who care about these issues to recognize is we may have just trusted the wrong voices to steer the ship here. And a moment, John, you may remember that even Rush Limbaugh back in June was supportive of those protests. I mean, even some of the most ardent right-wing figures in America were saying positive things about protesters who wanted to address what they called racial injustice. And they lost all that goodwill in the matter of weeks because they couldn't be measured, they couldn't be focused, and the media couldn't put the most reasonable voices in our communities at the forefront. Instead, we went to defund the police and it just went off the rails. So I do think there needs to be more of a, a reckoning for conservatives, but I believe that that happened in some part with you know, Muslim voters and Hispanic voters this time around, where you know Trump and his campaign moving away from bashing immigrants, for instance, and talking about Muslim bans and you know, using inflammatory terms about Islam, it, it proved to work, right? Not talking about those things saw his support in those communities increase drastically. 35% of self-identified Muslim voters voted Republican. So there is some recognition happening, I think, but there's a lot more work to do because it's a delicate balance between addressing these issues, but staying firm in your convictions as a conservative so that you do not fall into the liberal response to how to actually solve them. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you about the Muslim-American issue because the one thing that Trump did that I just could never get over. You may recall, it was fairly early in his presidency, where he attacked the family of Humyun Khan, who was an American soldier. His parents were originally from Pakistan. Humyun Khan, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, gave his life to the United States as a soldier in Iraq. He was killed by a suicide attack near Bakuba in, I think it was 2004. He was a war hero. He was a Muslim American war hero fighting in a war that the United States had started. And the mother and the father had appeared at the Democratic Convention, and it was just such a disgusting thing to do. I also thought to myself, well, that's it. No Muslim American, no South Asian American, no one of that ancestry is going to vote for this guy. And yet, if you look at the data on Muslims, as you said, if something like a third of Muslims voted for Trump, is it the case that people have short memories? Or is it the case that sometimes... People are just going to vote and say, hey, look, yeah, maybe he's a racist. Racism is one factor. It's disgusting. It's not something I like. 
but there's all this other stuff on the other side of the ledger. How do we reconcile this? It just, it does seem odd to me that a Muslim person would vote for this guy after the things he said about Muslims. I agree. Uh, look, I, I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian, but I have a Muslim name because my father is one. And so I also have Muslims in my family in Kenya. And so it's, it's definitely something that I'm sensitive to just on the basis of how, you know, his rhetoric from 2015 and 2016 affected how people who I love and care about experienced society. And that, you know, with his Muslim ban, some of my close friends who are Somalis in the United States couldn't have their family come visit them anymore from Canada. So there's a lot of, of stuff to that that's really complicated. And I certainly don't want to give Trump a pass on any of it, because when I said I probably wouldn't vote for him if I were American, this is one of the reasons why. I just think he he still hasn't made amends for a lot of the damage that he's done to American society. But uh, when it comes to the voting patterns of people, I think there are a few things going on here. Number one, I do believe a lot of people in minority communities see both sides, or in a case like Canada or the United Kingdom where you have multiple parties, we see flaws in all of them. And the media wants you to believe that the flaws of Trump in the minds of everyone from a minority community outweigh the flaws of Biden. And the reality is, I think a lot of Muslim voters like Hispanic and black voters just did a calculation and said, with all the flaws of all these options, I'm going to prioritize some issues over others. And maybe it would be social conservative values in some cases, or maybe it's um, believing that Trump has a better grasp on tax policy or economic policy for small businesses. And it's perfectly reasonable if you are a human being to say, among all the issues out there, I'm gonna prioritize some over others and I'm not gonna have a uniform across my entire religious or ethnic community, a uniform approach to how we weigh different issues. So I think that's a big part of what happened here. But I also believe a lot of people, as Trump went year by year through his presidency, a lot of people saw him become more moderate on immigration, stop talking about Muslims in such inflammatory ways, do these peace deals with Gulf states and Israel. And I think a lot of Muslims said, you know, this is the kind of stuff I want to see. This is the kind of way of talking about my community that I want to see. And it shifted their opinion of him. And I think that's really important because what happens to, to a lot of folks in minority communities is you wind up feeling like you're forced to defend some of the, the most destructive elements of your community. So people expect you, even if you're a law-abiding, perfectly great citizen who happens to be a Muslim, when there's a terror attack in France, they expect you to want to defend that in some way. Like, oh no, don't be too mean to the terrorists because you might then be implicating my community. Or if you're Black and you talk about you know, uh, gangsters who shoot up a, a park and, and hit two children, innocent children playing on a slide, they expect you to want to defend that guy. And it's like, why would I? This guy's shooting people in my community. It's We're the ones who suffer from that stuff. Why would we be defending it? And so I think a lot of minority communities who feel pigeonholed in that way, when they saw Trump start to talk about us in more positive tones and say, no, you don't have to defend this stuff. There's other ways we can engage you in, in a more positive way, in a more constructive way. It's appealing because it just opens up the ways we can exist. And I think many of us just want to have the freedom to exist in a society as an individual. Jamil Giovanni, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. 
head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.